Well, hi there. Welcome to this edition of Just Getting Started. Thrilled, thrilled to bring you a man that I think is so intriguing. His name is Nick Muhammad. He plays Nate the Great Shelley on Ted Lasso. I don't know about you, but I needed Ted Lasso to get through COVID. I needed something hopeful and inspirational, just like this podcast, Just Getting Started. So let's go talk to Nick and find out how he just got started. I feel like Ted Lasso came along in a very dark time in the world. And we needed a reason to smile. And, and I feel like, Nick, you gave us that with your character, Nate the Great Shelley. And I would love to know what you were thinking, first of all, before we go back in time and talk about your previous life as a seismologist, a mathematician, <laughs> a magician, everything you can think of. I'd love to hear your thoughts when you first saw this character on the pages. Did it jump out at you? Did you have any idea how transcending Nate could possibly be? Oh goodness. Um, I guess I guess the answer is no, really. I mean, you, you I was drawn to the the part and the script because you could immediately tell that it was quality writing. There was an amazing creative team behind it. And um but you know, at that point, to be fair, you know, I, I certainly when I went into audition for it, I, you know, I didn't know exactly where the character was gonna go. And it was only sort of later on and part of the reason why i i then decided to do it was because they said oh just so you know this is our kind of trajectory for this character and then once we started filming season one jason was very open about where it was going to go in terms of you know the, the heel turn in season two and him kind of going to the dark side as it were so i i, I was you know i could immediately tell that this was going to be a really fun show and i loved that thematically it was optimistic and, you know, it felt really refreshing in, th in that respect. And, you know, that was before we knew that there was going to be a pandemic when it was going to go out, of course, but um, it felt, it felt like it was slightly bucking the trend of those more sort of cynical snarky comedies. I felt that the kind of comedy was a little bit saturated with those at the time. And so, yeah, this, this felt great, but no, I don't think anyone could have anticipated how much it would connect to an audience. And obviously we're, beyond thrilled that it has and i think you know it's just testament to the writers really they're just so great and they they managed to write such kind of deep you know often you know when you're playing a part of an ensemble you don't get the opportunity to to you know for the character to go on a journey and um for it to have kind of layers of depth and stuff but they you know they've managed that with i think every single character in the show you know not just nate and so yeah it's a true you know a real privilege to get to play that part I think the reason why Americans resonate so much with this as well is it's that typical American out of place, right? And yeah. there's that feeling, and let's face it, because um, <laughs> Americans love an English accent. They are just riveted. And I'm not just saying just me. I, I think that what's <laughs> so fun for it as well is that it's not your typical London show. It's not taking place in London. It doesn't feel repetitive. It feels like a typical American out of water. And because to us, football is such a huge deal. And by that, I mean the NFL. <laughs> to see a character like Jason Sudeikis, like Ted Lasso going and taking that real Americana personality, becoming the fish out of water, um, I think is just something that it felt warm and fuzzy and a little bit different and strange at the same time. So what was it like for you getting to get to know this American crew and obviously Jason Sudeikis being the star of it as Ted Lasso, 
What kind of adjustment was that for you in terms of growing up in the UK, watching the shows that you watch, and then getting a healthy dose of this? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I you know, I was absolutely brought up on watching both British and American sitcoms. To be to be fair, um, you know, I never thought that you know, Scrubs was one of my favorite shows when I was growing up as well. Uh, so knowing that this was a Bill Lawrence show, I was like, oh man, you know, this is a guy who kind of creates Scrubs. But you know, those well, both Bill and and, and Jason and and that whole creative team, they really lead by example and. They're such positive people. I, I remember even on that very first day when we were doing the read through of the pilot, and it was quite a big deal because, you know, it was well, Apple were you know still relatively new in terms of not as a company, obviously, but but in terms of entering the kind of TV space, and um, everyone was really excited about the show, but it still felt like a, a big deal. And I remember, you know, the the, the recording of the pilot. Uh, was of the read through was being kind of beamed over to LA and New York and various places, and so we were all quite nervous. And Bill, both Bill and Jason, just said, "I'm sure that you, particularly British people, will be um, will have heard all these kind of horror horror stories of uh, pilot read throughs where people literally get kind of cut <laughs> instantly, or you know, there, there is a meeting immediately after the read through, and suddenly they're recasting and things like that." And and they were just so nice. They said, "We just want to know that's not how we operate." you guys are the people that we want to do this and you're all here to stay. So just enjoy it. And I remember from that moment onwards, we all just felt so, I, I just so valued and appreciated. I mean, it's a very kind of Ted experience in that it was, you know, we experienced something and we kind of came, came away feeling very positive and empowered actually as individuals, as actors. And so, yeah, it, it, you know, we just sort of hit the ground running and it, it was just, you know, just a joy to be a part of. I can't really, I can't really fault it because because there was a sense of being overwhelmed. Um, but you know, from 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 day one, we, we were just all told to no no we're all we're all on the same page here. Let's just all have a good time. And you know, it's just such a great a great set. There's no you know there's no turkeys. Jason says that a lot, but there's no turkeys. <laughs> what was it about Nate that was so appealing to you? I liked his trajectory in terms of it. It's quite and it's quite a. A, a familiar one you know the underdog who sort of does good particularly in, in season one I really liked that because you know I, I I quite like playing the the sort of shy kind of um introverted guy but I liked the fact that he had his moments to shine and uh and I liked the way that you know over the course of season one his confidence grew and grew and there were some just fun scenes as part of that like the roast scene in in season one where he kind of roasts all the players. Um, that was a really fun one. And just knowing that, you know, by the end of it, he was going to get promoted. I felt like it, it was, particularly when I was reading it, it felt like, well, this is definitely a character that the audience are going to kind of latch onto and really root for because, you know, he kind of comes from obscurity and no one has ever really given him the time of day, but Ted has come over and has just embraced him like immediately and and uh, and has, you know, run with it. And that that has instilled this, this newfound confidence in him. In, in Nate. And of course, you know, spoiler alert, it obviously does then turn sour in season two, but that in itself is really interesting and, and uh, certainly not what I think people were expecting. Um, and, uh, and I think possibly because audiences had rooted uh, for Nate in season one and had really kind of felt his journey as kind of going from an underdog to a kind of a hero and getting promoted by the end. Uh, I think it meant it made that fall from grace 
an even sort of harsher one and a steeper one when he did sort of turn on Ted by the end of, of, of season two. Yeah, I don't think many people saw that coming at all. I mean, if you follow at all the James Campbell, the myth building, um, obviously yeah. the hero is normally on that ascent, but it was a good twist because there was a whole lot of happy in Ted Lasso and to have that twist happen kind of came out of left field. Yeah, I think I think the only... Uh, not not valid criticism, but 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 whenever I've heard anyone sort of be critical of the show, it, it's 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 where they've said, oh, well, there's just not enough um, conflict, or not you know it, that it is you know it, it 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 pushes that kind of optimism and the hope uh, at the expense of conflict. But I, I just can, you know you watch season two and you're like, well, it's all conflict. It's you know there's so much conflict in there, and I think it's I also think it made it feel a lot more realistic, you know. The idea that someone, I'm talking about Nate, but but who has been at the receiving end of, of bullies and has experienced that often, not exclusively, but often they do then become a bully because, you know, when they're given a bit of power and, you know, or promoted or kind of they go to the next sort of level of leadership or whatever that is, because that's all that they have known. So they just project that onto the, you know, the next sort of underling and and then they kind of, you know, that's how they sort of see their sort of their place in the world, which is obviously very sad, but I think there's a truth to it. Were you ever bullied as a child? No, no, I don't think I was, but I definitely felt there were definitely times when I felt like I was sort of different and an outsider and, you know, I wasn't sporty at all. And, you know, I did, I know you said in your intro, but I did, you know, I did, I was quite a geeky kid, you know, I loved science and I did magic as a kid a lot. And, you know, I did it professionally then for a while before acting. But, um, you know, being the kind of kid who does magic tricks, you'll hear a lot of magicians say that often that is a defense mechanism for not being bullied because it's a way to avoid the bullies because, you know, you can just be, oh, just pick a card, pick a card, just pick a card. And then you kind of, you, that's how you sort of get out of those sort of playground situations. And, uh, but so no, I wasn't bullied, but I could certainly, um, uh, associate with some of the kind of feelings that Nate had at the start of his sort of season one journey. Let's talk about how you just got started because I feel like your story is so fantastic. It wasn't as though you grew up wishing that you could be on stage and so many actors knew from Jump Street that they wanted to be on stage and you didn't. You were heading to Cambridge, but you chose the University of Durham. And I, first of all, I want to know why, because to us, it just seems so crazy to, to choose a school over Cambridge or Oxford. I mean, you, you think of Cambridge or Oxford as Harvard or Yale. So what made you choose there instead? <laughs> well, I think uh, it was just partly because, to be frank, the course that they offered at Durham was just more suited towards what I was interested in. And I think there was an element of of, of being a little bit intimidated by the prospects of Oxford and Cambridge. I did then go to Cambridge to do postgraduate studies. So I kind of, I feel like ultimately... I was really lucky because I get to kind of, I got to kind of experience sort of undergraduate life at Durham, which felt less pressured, but was still kind of a good place, you know, a good university. And, you know, the uh, sciences department was really good and, and I really enjoyed studying there. And then, and then to kind of then get to go to kind of Cambridge, but with that kind of under my belt sort of felt like, uh, I just felt very grateful that I'd sort of just had that slightly sort of stepping stone to it. I think I would have been a bit, uh, rabbit in headlights if I'd have gone sort of straight from high school to Oxford or Cambridge. But, um, but I do, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I loved both and, um, 
you know, we, my wife and I, we got married in Cambridge and we, we visited again like last summer. We love it. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's really nice. So then how does one make the jump from doctorate degrees in seismology and oh, interest in magic and interest in math? How, what was the first inkling that you had that there was a love to be had there? Well, I think um, I don't, you know, because I was into magic as a kid, I, I definitely always enjoyed performing. I mean, not that I ever thought that I could make a career out of performing and, and you know, it's still very different to acting and writing and so on. Um, but actually it was, it was probably once I'd made, once I'd then left Durham and went to Cambridge to start doing this PhD, I, I got involved with Cambridge Footlights, which is the, like the comedy sort of sketch group, um, which has sort of produced, you know, I mean, it's kind of got this <laughs> kind of crazy alumni base of like Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson and Mitchell and Webb and, you know, Mel and Sue. They're just some great, kind of great people who, who've, who've sort of been through that discipline. But really all it was was an opportunity to to write and perform comedy every couple of weeks. And, you know, you, uh, as part of that, I got to kind of go to the Edinburgh Festival. And it was sort of during there that I was like, I'm re I really love this. And I think I love it enough to quit my PhD as much as that was kind of probably a crazy idea at the time. Um, and, and, you know, there were absolutely no guarantees and for a good while, particularly then when I moved to London, you know, I couldn't afford to live as a struggling actor or struggling comedian. I was working at, you know, working at a bank for a while in the day, but then doing a lot of gigs and so on in the evening. So it was quite, it was quite a, a long, a long process in terms of before I could sort of fully say I'm a professional actor and that's all I do now for a living. I've only really been able to sort of say that for the last sort of five to 10 years, but, but, but it was definitely at Cambridge when I think it kind of gave me the sort of the taste for it and, and, and possibly even the ambition to think that it was possible to, to achieve it. I can't imagine what your mum and dad would have said. You know what, mom and dad, I'm going to quit my doctorate and become an actor. That's every parent's dream, I think. <laughs> they were, they were, they're obviously, they were very supportive. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that my mum in particular was, was quite apprehensive at the choice. But, you know, she was like, okay, well, you know, give yourself, I remember they were like, well, just give yourself maybe a time limit. Like if it doesn't work out, maybe maybe reassess. But, okay, if you want to kind of go and, and I think that was that was quite wise. And I did. I think I, I can't remember if I gave myself a time limit or not, but I remember thinking, okay, that, that does sound sensible. Whether, I don't know whether I stuck to the, uh, the time frame or not. I'm not sure now. So what was the first job that you had that you thought I can, I can, I can follow this trajectory. I can do this professionally. Uh, gosh. I mean, I mean, in, in terms of the very first acting job that I did, I knew that I loved it and wanted to, to do it for a living. And that was a, a comedy drama called um, Billy Go on the BBC. It was part of like a four part where they'd adapted these fairy tales and made them into kind of modern sort of stories. And uh, I remember I got to go to Ireland for three, four weeks and, uh, and I got to play one of the billy goats, basically, even though the story was that they weren't billy goats. They were like in a boy band. It was quite a, a strange story, but it was, I just loved it. And it was the first time I'd kind of been away, like from home and, and acted. And um, 
it felt quite glitzy, even though, you know, we were just, you know, it's still quite a, a standard job. There wasn't anything hugely glamorous about it necessarily, but um, it, it, I loved it. And, and, and I think technically at that point, I was like, I'm, I'm going to stop working at the bank and I'm just going to kind of go, go for it. Um, but again, there was no guarantees. And I, I would say it wasn't really until sort of intelligence and Ted Lasso in particular, that I feel like I've sort of learned kind of a little bit more about what acting is and how to kind of, uh, to kind of, ho- you know, I, 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 you know, obviously I still feel like I'm learning tons and sort of honing my craft and particularly on Ted. I know I said before that, you don't always get an opportunity in, in, in the UK sort of doing British sitcoms where if you're part of an ensemble, you don't really get an opportunity for kind of character development necessarily because, you know, often a series lasts six half hours. Whereas with Ted, you know, there's sort of 12, I mean, I don't know how long episode 12 was of um, of season two. I think it was like 50 minutes or something. You know, you, you, suddenly now with the streaming platforms, you get a lot longer uh a lot more airtime and so they just allow these kind of minor characters to breathe a lot more in, in within the writing and in the scripts and so on and i i feel like you know just just that has allowed me to kind of grow as an actor because you're just able to sort of slightly pace your performance and it can become a lot more nuanced whereas often not all the time but often uh in in previous work you know there's a lot more sense of okay we've got to rush and if this isn't sort of you know, absolutely on point storytelling, it might get cut. So don't slow down, just kind of keep on point. And, you know, we're really going to focus on the main characters. We're not necessarily going to have time to flesh out the minor parts. And so, yeah, I, you know, again, I just owe a huge debt to Ted Lasso for that as well. Why do you think Nate has resonated so much? Uh, I think, um, well, I guess, like I was saying before, in that, in that, I think everyone can associate with an underdog story. I think everyone likes to believe that uh, the underdog can sort of see through to to sort of being good and and, and kind of getting on the top of their game. Uh, and and I th- I think also with 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 Nate, particularly particularly in season one, he really epitomised the the kind of the core message within Ted, which is that there's this great guy, Ted Lasso who through his interactions with other people makes them better, make, makes them better people, um, makes them see the positive in themselves, empowers them. And that Nate journey in season one absolutely embodies that. You know, this is a guy who's the kit man. No one else gives him the time of day. Ted comes along, empowers him bit by bit, and suddenly he's promoted and he's a coach and he's suddenly commanding the respect of the players and the the fans you know the the supporters of of, of AFC Richmond so it really I think it really I think it, it it kind of captured the show in a nutshell did that story and again which is why it hurt all the more when there's that fall from grace in season two so let's talk about how people interact with you now are they running up to you calling you Nate are they uh, has how has your life changed since you took on this character <laughs> it has changed uh and, and it, you know, it, it's always a privilege. Like, honestly, I can't, it, it's never a chore. Like we're maybe there's a honeymoon period at the moment. I don't know, but it's, it's so nice. And maybe because of when it came out with the pandemic and everything, people come up to me every day, like every day and they want to talk about it. And it is such a joy. It's so nice that it's connected with people. And of course, there's a, particularly with season two, there's an element of tongue in cheek of people like me, Nate, what are you doing? I can't believe it. You, I can't believe, you know, you've turned on 
on Ted and you've left the club and uh but that's really fun because it just means you know because it's it's a fiction you know the the story is fiction so it's kind of great that people are that invested in it as if it's almost real life but people are nothing but polite and it's just nice that this show has you know resonated with so many people and when people oh hello (laughs) Uh, and people you know getting in touch on twitter and stuff you know it's really made a difference i think to some people's lives you know that that show came at obviously it wasn't planned but came at a time when i think people were really responsive to such a positive message because you know a lot of people were in lockdown a lot of people were really suffering as a result of the pandemic and um you know it was just a bit of a a, a ray of sunshine i think uh, for a lot of people and we're we're so grateful for that i think you should be grateful that you're not in america because i think people are so much more aggressive here that I'm afraid they would come up to you and be like, what is your problem? How could you do that to Ted? You know, I think there's a difference between the American personality. And by the way, there's three dogs here. So you you will hear barking at some point because I'm That's totally fine. unprofessional. But I think that there's that differentiation between an American personality and a British person. And obviously the reserve that there is in the UK, proper respect for people, uh, I'm afraid that you might, if you're walking down the street of New York, have some people accost you. <laughs> well, I had, I remember when I was in America when uh, the f- season finale of season two went out uh, and um, I was in Albuquerque and uh, and we went to the balloon festival there and uh, and I, I was only, I, I, I sort of just arrived, so I was quite jet lagged and stuff. And I kind of couldn't believe that people were at that point kind of already sort of going, Oh, Nate. Oh, hang on. What, what have you done? I can't believe what you just, I've just seen you betray Nate and now you're hit like betray Ted. What, what are you doing? It Like there, there was, there was a, an element of like, you know, reality and, and the fiction sort of blurring a little bit, but I, I, I enjoy it. I, I, you know, I never find it a chore, but yeah, may, maybe if, uh, <laughs> I kind of kept to myself after that, but like uh, maybe if I'd have been accosted too many times, I would have uh, found it a bit more difficult. We were saying this before uh, with my producer, Lou Pellegrino, we were saying oftentimes with actors, people can't divorce them from the character that they play. Whereas broadcasters, they know us. So because they see us all the time, we don't play anyone other than ourselves. And there's that differentiation that sometimes people have trouble with. And because you were so nasty in the end of the season, I think that might be part of that failure to disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, I was, <laughs> I, I remember just before season, the finale dropped, Jason texting me just to check in, which is so sweet. And, and also a very Ted thing to do, I think, because the previous episode had been when Nate makes that really deeply inappropriate move on Keely. And, and left a really sort of, and, you know, the episode kind of goes out, I think, on him spitting in the mirror again, maybe. I can't remember now. Um, and it just left a really sour taste. And I think everyone was like, ah, I don't think there's really any going back for Nate from this. And, you know, obviously they still had the season finale to come and that showdown between him and Ted. But, um, you know, I was, a, I was a little apprehensive by that point, thinking, oh, what are people going to think? But, you know, it's all part of the, sort of the joy of the storytelling and you know they've done such a great job as writers to tell these intricate layered stories and the fact that they can make people care so much is undoubtedly a good thing you know they have done their job right you know by by doing that 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How much of Jason Sudeikis is Ted Lasso and vice versa? 100%, just 100% both ways, I would say. He's so great. He's so nice. He's so kind. He's so gracious. He's humble. That kind of, you know, be curious, not judgmental. It's just Jason all over. He's, you know, he's just so interested and wants to make things better and so passionate about it. You know, it, it, the show wouldn't work if if he wasn't really, te- you know, if he couldn't embody that. Uh, it's like I was saying, same with Bill Lawrence, you know, they just lead by a really good example. And um, that just filters down. It filters down to to everyone. There was a really nice moment. I remember at the very end of season two, and we couldn't, we couldn't really do like a rap party or anything because I think it was still quite... Um, sort of lockdown we couldn't do like an indoor thing so we just all met on richmond green and and i live in richmond um and so we, we were all kind of having drinks and my wife wandered down and uh and at that point my wife hadn't seen the show yet and um and she said a really really nice thing which which, which shouldn't be the case but it but it's true that and everyone was there from you know cast crew supporting artists everyone writers just anyone who can make it was sort of there and everyone sort of mucking in and having a good time and my wife said it's sort of like the first time that she did and she's not part of the industry she's a brilliant teacher music teacher and um but she said i had no idea who was like a lead actor in that show who was uh who, who had done catering on the show and not to belittle catering but the, but what i mean is there was no sort of sense of hierarchy i think sometimes there are so many stories where you kind of get quite often a toxic hierarchy within within production and jobs and you know the people who are at the top behave like they're at the top and 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 that has a a trickle down effect as well and it can't be very it's not very pleasant whereas ted lasso i can honestly say it's it's a job where everyone is made to feel so valued and so part of a pro everyone just wants to do a really good job because they know that the show has such a positive message and has resonated with people it was, it, you know, it's a, it's a joy to be a part of. And um, I, I think I, I felt that that really sort of spoke volumes in terms of how, how it is run, that show. Um, it's, you know, every, everyone feels so, it's such an ensemble effort. And um, uh, which is good because, you know, that the show is about, you know, teamwork and optimism and hope and working together and producing something good as a result of it. Before I ask you what your favorite episode is, I would be a complete and total idiot if I didn't say to you, you're kidding me, you live in Richmond? Did you live in Richmond before the show? Yeah, we've lived here for seven years. Yeah, what what a fluke. I mean, I can, I, I can sometimes walk to work. I mean, it's crazy. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it'll never happen again. So I'm enjoying I mean, that it. never happens. <laughs> No, no, never happens. Never, ever happens. Never, never. How much of what we see is actually Richmond? Like, is that your local pub? Uh, yeah, we go, we go there all the time. I mean, we, <laughs> the Prince's Head, which is the pub. I mean, the interior of the pub is a set, but, um, but the exterior of the pub is, is, is a real pub on Richmond Green. And yeah, I mean, me and Brendan, who plays Coach Bid, so Brendan arrived about a month or so ago. So we've already had like drinks there. 
Jason is living in Richmond as well while we're filming. And I think Hannah might live here at some point because she likes it. So, I mean, we, suddenly there's like a real kind of community of <laughs> Ted Lasso actors who are suddenly living in Richmond. But yeah, I've lived here, you know, Becca and I, we've lived here for seven years. So we love it. Yeah. I would imagine that the regulars who live there are now suddenly looking at you like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. What are you doing here? And what's this? That has to be so surreal. It is quite, it is quite a strange one. And the, 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 the staff at the, at the pub are, are so nice because, because we've kind of now gone there quite a lot. So that, you know, they, they're kind of quite in, in tune with it. And um, they've even put like a little sort of shrine to Ted, Ted Lasso. They've got like pictures up and things on the wall, but it's genuinely just a really nice pub. I mean, even prior to Ted Lasso, I had drinks there and it's, it's a great pub. It's a really nice one. So, yeah. Genius. Who makes you laugh the most on the set? Well, that's a good question. I, I I don't have tons of interactions with her, but Hannah Hannah makes me laugh a lot. As in, we set each other, we set each other off laughing quite a lot. Jeremy, who plays Higgins, he knows how to... He, he occasionally just makes little noises, which I always find funny. And then often, particularly in season one, being caught in the firing line between Jason and Brendan because there was so many scenes where there was Coach Beard, Nate and Ted on the sidelines. So we'd have a lot of just sort of times when, you know, the camera's just facing us and they would just improvise stuff because they're so in tune with each other because they've improvised together for so long. I would just get caught in the firing line and often crack up because they would change the ending of every scene. So, <laughs> yeah, but everyone has their moments. Um, Phil, who plays Jamie, he really makes me laugh such a great part and he does it so well Collar, who plays isaac makes me laugh that's a great bunch such a great bunch it's so interesting because you have so many trained actors on the set obviously uh yeah and phil and hannah you've got people who have become huge names in theater and here they are doing yeah. spot on comedy what have you learned from them gosh it's it, well it's it's that's absolutely on point because i you know, you, you, you realize, you know, I, I never went to drum school and, and haven't done tons of theater, done bits and pieces, but mostly comedy. Um, and, and you do realize you see everyone's different sort of, uh, sort of processes in terms of uh, acting. And I don't know, just, I, I, I always, I, I love how many questions that we all kind of get to ask on set that we never feel rushed on set, which is a, a real luxury to be honest we're very lucky for that um uh everyone's always sort of just wanting to know motivation particularly when we're filming out of order and if we know that the, the particular scene we might be doing is gonna uh be important for something that we're going to be filming you know in a month's time or something we'll ask a lot of questions and we're allowed to input a lot as well like we're, we're always uh made to feel that you know, there's a script, but the script isn't sacrosanct. You know, if we have, if we want to put it into our own voice or if we have an idea for a, a better tag to end on or we want to ad lib a particular phrase, you know, they'll they'll always allow for that. You know, we'll always, you know, get what's down on the page as well because, you know, they've spent so many hours agonizing over that. But, um, but they're so open for suggestions. So, you, you know, the, what have I learned specifically about acting? Um to to not to not be afraid to take my time i guess you know hannah and phil you know when they're doing kind of proper kind of character performances you realize that you kind of can't rush a lot of that um and um and and, and as a cast and a crew they're very supportive of you wanting to sort of take your time and not feel not feel rushed which is which is great 
What's been your favorite episode so far? Oh goodness. Oh, there's so many. I think I really, I really like episode seven of season one, which is called make Rebecca great again, I think, which is, it, it's actually, it's the one where Nate does the roast, which was just a really fun scene to do. But also it's when Hannah, uh, when Rebecca does the let it go karaoke, which is obviously kind of phenomenal, but, but more importantly, it's also where, um, where Ted has his panic attack. And, you know, I think it felt, it, it felt like it was, it was one of those episodes. And again, it's testament to the writers where they're able to walk this real fine line of, delivering on the laughs and delivering on the emotion of, of of certain you know certain scenes and i think often in comedy drama one can sort of sometimes end up undermining the other or you sort of sacrifice a bit of the comedy so that you can be more dramatic and you can sacrifice some of the drama so that you can be more lighthearted with the gags and stuff but um that that was an episode that walked this managed to walk this tightrope i think it's also when the first time that roy and keely kiss as well so there's so much going on in that in that episode um i loved that one i thought it was terrific um and in season two i thought the funeral episode was phenomenal um oh gosh so many i mean i i thought the season finale was really great i mean like as in it felt really dramatic and uh yeah i i, I thought the opening i love the christmas episode i thought that was so fun and so nice um oh so many i love the episode in wembley and and it's where um oh forgive me i can't remember the name of the brilliant actor i think he's called kieran i can't remember his surname who plays jamie's dad and it's where they have that standoff in the locker room after the the match and brett roy goes to comfort jamie and it's so so powerful and it's all about toxic masculinity and all, so many things but it was so well acted and so so well you know, it was so well written as well. I, I remember thinking, oh God, that's a, a great episode. And just to film at Wembley as well was really fun. And then as we talk about the end, because I love how whenever people interview actors, they always think that they're going to get some incredible scoop. Like, you're going to tell me what's going to happen, right? For season three. And you're sitting here like, no, you moron. I'm not watching the show. <laughs> but it leads on such a great ending. And that we feel so invested Um and also so angry at the same time with Nate, how much of that was your input? I read in your, um, you wrote on, I believe it was your Instagram that the hair color change was deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. That was all deliberate. And that, that was more just sort of through discussions with the makeup designer, Nikki Austin, um, that we, you know, we, we wanted to sort of ch chart his downfall physically in some way. And we, we found that interesting. Um, so, I mean, I mean, it, it's one of those things because we knew that we had such a long season and 12 episodes worth of time to sort of track this downfall of Nate in season two. It, it was a kind of an ongoing conversation as they were writing scripts about, okay, you know, cause you know, you never want to peak too early and, that scene between Ted and Nate is the only scene between Ted and Nate in the entire season, which is sort of incredible, actually. So only scene between just just those two people. You're kidding. I didn't, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, but it's really important that it's the only scene as well. And, and I remember knowing that from very early on because it's to effectively show that kind of, all that kind of pent-up 
aggression and tension that Nate is feeling. He's not getting to have it out with Ted. He feels abandoned uh, by Ted. And again, it's it's sort of allowing the audience to sort of almost subconsciously to realize that he hasn't had his Ted time. Ted has had his own issues and his own sort of demons to kind of work on. And he, he sort of, he hasn't, I, you know, he sort of has to a degree abandoned Nate. And um, uh, yeah, it was just about sort of charting that downfall. And, you know, it was just a very open conversation. You know, they would, as as the scripts were coming in, they would sort of send me stuff, but it was always quite, you know, to the wire. I, I remember I only got that final, uh, when, when Nate lays into Ted, I think that speech was only sent like a week before. And, but they said that that's it. It's probably not going to change. They were kind of, I think this is it. So learn this because I was really adamant that I was like, it's going to be a really difficult scene. So I kind of wanted to have as much time on it as possible in, in advance to prepare and things. But, um, and only because, I'm just not that well-trained an actor. So I knew I just <laughs> I'd need as much sort of time to sort of focus as possible. Um, but yeah, they're so great and so understanding. And as I say, so generous about sort of sharing the reasons behind why they've written something in a certain way and uh, the logic behind what they want Nate to feel and so on. They're, they're, you know, they're really good with their time at explaining it all. You're going to love this. This is why it's good. It's a podcast. I just realized that my kid took my charger to my computer. I'm running to the office next door. I'm getting a charger coming back, and then I'm going to finish with you. Don't go anywhere. Hold on. This is how I won't. professional I am. Hold on. <laughs> we should leave this bit in. <laughs> oh. No, I'm back. I mean, like, that's the best part of doing a podcast. And, like, Lou, I would even say leave it in. Like, you know, everyone always says, like, oh, everything's so perfect on TV. Things aren't perfect. My kid is a total <laughs> thief. He took my charger. It happens, right? Life happens. I mean, that's that's the truth. Like, if you're doing live TV, it really stinks. It's not live. It's a podcast, which means I can go and run and get my charger. And if my dog barks, like, you know, shit happens. It just happens. Um, you talked about, as, as we were just, as I was going to get my charger, we were talking about this interaction between Ted and, and Nate. And I think that it that's one of the things that makes it so fascinating is that Ted's, Nate just wants that same love. He just wants that same, he wants to be seen. That's a very universal theme in life. He just wants to be seen. And I wonder yeah. if that's why people have latched onto this so much. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, um, you know, a, a lot of it stems from, I think, the toxic relationship with his dad. Um, so he does have these effectively abandonment issues. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that, because because prior to then, you know, Nate would make a suggestion and uh, Beard and Ted were like, oh, that's a great suggestion. Yeah, let's play it. And Nate would be like, oh, wow, I can't believe you're playing my, you know, whatever uh, tactic that he suggested. Um, and then, um, you know, it, it gets to the point that he's a coach and now he's expected to be good at his job because he's not the kind of the underdog kit man anymore. And so, um, yeah, by the time we kind of into season two he, he he's he, he's not i guess he's not kind of getting that praise that he used to get and uh yeah he, he you know he, he lacks any real relationship with anyone does nate um and so yeah he he, he really does feel that, that ted isn't there anymore to support him and without that support network he, he starts to crumble i wish that you could tell us what was going to happen 
I wish that you would come on this show and tell us, okay, here's what's happening in season three, but that would be insane because there's a reason why there is season three. But tell us what we can look forward to in Nate and how he develops for season three. Ooh. Well, there, I mean, there genuinely is stuff that I don't know. Like I know broadly stuff, but I don't, there's a lot of details that I'm not aware of. Um, I I think it's fair to say that we would love for it to be part of a redemption arc. I don't know if it is or not, um, but there's definitely unfinished business between Nate and Ted slash AFC Richmond. And I think even Brendan has already sort of gone on record and said that, that we're going to see two matches between West Ham and AFC Richmond. So we know that those two those two teams are going to kind of come together and that's definitely going to pit Nate and uh, Anthony Rupert, who plays Rupert against, uh, against Ted and his team. So um, yeah, there's, there's unfinished business. Um, But, you know, other than that, and, and, and of the stuff that I know I'm not allowed to talk about, (laughs) I don't know what else I can say. Um, I'd love to know what's going to happen with Roy and Keeley. Like uh, I'm intrigued as to, what might happen there and with Rebecca and Sam, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of love stories that I'm keen, keen to, to see how they develop. But, um, and I'm sure that there will, there, you know, it, the, the writers would it'd be remiss of the writers not to, uh, to deliver on sort of some of those stories. So I'm sure we'll see more on those, but, um, but exactly what, I don't know. I mean, what about a love scene in a, a love interest for Nate? Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> you know, maybe. It's certainly nothing. We haven't seen it yet. I mean, you know, he's he's definitely made a move on Kelia, a very inappropriate one. Um, and I don't see that happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, he. I think he's in need of some kind of relationship, isn't it? Because as an individual, he's just making too many mistakes, I think. And I think he needs somebody to sit him down and say, look, this is, this is how you need to behave to get on in life. <laughs> Cause you're, you're just lashing out in all the wrong directions at the moment. And you're not, you're not doing yourself any favors. I did love what you said about that kiss that the character Nate was angry that Roy wasn't more upset about mm. the kiss as if mm. he overlooked him totally. Yeah. Which is, which is, which I think Nate perceives as like almost like a, a microaggression against him from Roy that, you know, that Roy isn't uh, sort of sufficiently kind of annoyed at him because he doesn't maybe see Nate as a big enough as a threat, but obviously what's, you know, it's a massive oversight on Nate's part because he should never have made an inappropriate move in the, in the first place. You know, he, he should, his, his attitude, his attitude shouldn't be, Oh, I can't believe that your boyfriend isn't more angry with me. I mean, that's a, it's a dreadful way to, to think. So yeah, Nate is making a lot of, of bad decisions towards the latter half of season two, for sure. So as we wrap up this edition of just getting started, I want to ask you, we talk about hope. We talk about giving people some light because everyone Everyone wants a chance to reinvent and wants to find a way to get started. What is your best advice to those who might think that they have their career path all set in front of them, but then they make a turn and they have their sliding doors moment and their life has changed forever? Wow. Um, 
Well, I can definitely associate with that in that, in that I, I feel like I definitely had that moment when I decided to sort of pursue acting, even though there were no guarantee, guarantee, guarantees. guarantees. Um, I, I mean, it, it sounds like an absolute cliche, but um, yeah, you just kind of got to have that that self-belief really because no no one else is going to really believe in you more than you are going to believe in yourself especially if the thing that you want to do feels quite out there or different or not immediately within grasp or recognizably within grasp um you just got to kind of trust your instincts and and, and go for it and you know often it's you know more than often it's not going to be easy um financially and sort of from a stability point of view you know you're gonna you're always gonna kind of question it and you're gonna sometimes doubt yourself but when that sliding doors moment does kind of come about it feels like it's always better to embrace it maybe give yourself a time limit but embrace it because you might always look back on that moment and if you have if you haven't embraced it and, and, and possibly regret it but um you know only you can make that decision and uh it takes a lot of a lot of self-motivation i think but having belief in oneself uh, you know it kind of goes back to that core message in ted lasso again again doesn't it but um yeah believing in 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 yourself is 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 so key to to success in that respect i think sorry that was a really waffly answer wasn't it no, that was a beautiful answer. And that that's the whole point of this is that I think everyone is looking for inspiration right now and looking for maybe that gentle hand on your lower back that says like, you can go forward, you can try this, you'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to, yeah, just sort of try and, try and make those sort of demons that might creep in and say, nah, you're not good enough or you don't, you're, you're not, you know, you'll approach it the wrong way. Just, just, just allowing those to kind of quieten down a little bit and just allowing yourself to kind of push forward in that direction is yeah, it's such a positive thing as well when it works out, I guess. I mean, it's, it's so, so tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I feel very lucky that things thus far have, have, have worked out in terms of acting, but um, there's, there's, there were never any guarantees and there still aren't any guarantees, you know, maybe Ted Lasso will be my last job. I don't know, but you know, you've always you've always got to try and push yourself forward at every step of the way. Somehow, I don't believe that that will be the case. Nick Muhammad, we are so thrilled to have had you here on Just Getting Started. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Thank Susie. you for your patience. I feel like you get it because things change and things get crazy. But I can't wait to catch up with you after season three. Thank you very much. Cheers, Susie. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nick. I know that I did. I needed Ted Lasso to get me through COVID. I needed something hopeful and something inspirational. And that's just what that show did for me. And talking to Nick, talking to somebody who really wasn't sure he could crack being an actor full time, that this is one of his biggest gigs yet here on Ted Lasso. I think it gives us all hope that we can all just get started all over again. Thanks for taking in this episode. Coming up next, Stephen A. Smith. He'll sit with me and talk about his illustrious career. How did he get started? How did one of the most prolific announcers in sports broadcasting get his start? You'll find out on the next episode of Just Getting Started. Talk to you then. <laughs>